Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Lunchroom Podcast today. Um, my name is Alan Travis, and I go to Clemson University. Uh, my name is Rhodes Campbell. I'm a junior at the University of South Carolina. I'm Gavin Spurrier. I'm a senior and football player at Duke University. I'm Will Hall, and I'm currently a junior business major at the University of South Carolina. And uh, fellas, it's great to be back after our uh, bye week of sorts. Uh, I know we were all studying for exams and uh, took a little time off to deal with school, so that's good. But that also means we have uh, two weeks of content to catch up on this podcast. So uh, a lot of big things happening in the transfer portal while we were away. Um, obviously, locally and recently, uh, Spencer Rattler to the Gamecocks, uh, a huge pickup for us. But I just wanted to get y'all's thoughts on, you know, kind of just the the changing of landscape in college football with the transfer portal, because it really seems to me like you're going to see a lot of these guys that aren't, you know, starters right away. You're going to see a lot of them, you know, not even try to wait it out in battle like your Connor Shaw's, your Mac Jones, your Jake Fromms, who are all quarterbacks that, you know, weren't initially granted a, a starter role. And then they uh, stayed at their program or school and then they um, earned their starts and ended up being great quarterbacks for their teams. So uh, you're seeing guys like Spencer Rattler, Casey Thompson at Texas and other guys you know, just leave immediately, not even try to battle out for spots. So I just want to get y'all's thoughts on the change in college football landscape on that. Yeah, I'll start us off there. Um, there's way too many college football players in the portal right now. It's kind of turning into NFL free agency almost. Just everyone's transferring out the first sign of adversity. No one's no one's really fighting for anything anymore. It's the first sign of adversity comes up, You, they just run. I get certain situations. They're not Maybe they're not getting what schools promised them or things like that, but it's just when anything happens, they're just leaving at the drop of a gun. So, yeah, that's that's my thoughts on it. For me, you know, I think the big thing is the one-time free transfer rule. You know, I think in the past, uh, lots of coaches made it hard to transfer. You know, conferences made it hard to transfer within conferences. And I think that definitely needed to be pulled back a little bit because that was just too much. But giving every player a chance to leave and immediately be eligible at another school – Uh, Like Alan just said, I mean, when they see adversity, that's what they're going to do. So in my opinion, with COVID now kind of, you know, the pandemic getting close to the rear rear mirror, I think we really need to reinstate, you know, if you transfer without graduating, sitting out one year, because I think that does, you know, make players want to fight for a job, you know, makes them less likely to transfer. But I still think, you know, grad transfers, yep, immediate eligibility uh, or any circumstance where you can get a waiver for, you know, sick parents, you know, whatever the situation is, those can be reviewable. But the one-time transfer, I think, is really, really the root of the problem with the transfer portal right now. It's like the big thing for me, though, and I'm surprised to hear that from you, Gavin, is, you know, I mean, coaches can come and go as they please. You don't think players – and obviously, you know, there can be some stipulations I think that they need to clean up. Um, But, I mean, you know, a coach leaves and, you know, that's not the guy you committed to. Don't you think, you know, there should be, you know, some leniency with players transferring when they, you know, aren't their commitment isn't really honored by the coach and the staff. Yeah. And I actually, I think, you know, a new coaching staff would be one of those uh, waiver spots. You know, I don't, there are not many coaches go to a head coach and leave in one year and very less likely two years. So I think it is different. You know, I think coaches do move a lot and with money and even just job security getting fired, it's a lot different nowadays than it used to be. So that plays a role in it. I, I think the best thing to do would be, you know, new coaching staff, new changes. That would be an exception to the one-time, you know, transfer rule. But that, I mean, that'd be a good good conversation to have. Yeah, and I want to clarify, I don't necessarily think the transfer portal expanding is necessarily a bad thing. I do think 
that there are scenarios where it can be good. Like I think Spencer Rattler is a great example. I think he was a guy at Oklahoma. He did really well in his first year, had a great opportunity, and then he, you know, slacked off or just his, you know, he, he didn't fit the system anymore. And, you know, his opportunity got taken away. He was moved to a backup. And, you know, that coaching staff already had an idea of where his talent was. And it has now been moved down. So he said, you know what, I need a fresh start, a new place to go. And I think that's a good thing. However, I think there's also scenarios where it's creating bad things, where it's just, you know, like Alan said, it's just creating people, you know, the lack of competition. No one wants to, you know, sit there and wait. A new guy comes in. Okay, well, if, we're, if my school's getting a transfer, I'm transferring out to a different school where I know I can start. Yeah, and I'll, to go off that, I, I'd agree. Um, I would say transferring can sometimes be good. As Kyler Murray and Baker both had to transfer because they didn't get the playing time they deserved, and they both ended up winning Heisman's. They're now very successful NFL quarterbacks. So it can be good sometimes, but also it can be used way too much. Yeah, uh, just piggybacking right off what Alan said, I think lots of players are very misguided. Uh, I think players enter the portal thinking they're a, first of all, they automatically think they're going to have somewhere to go and B they think they're going to start. And in reality, not only are you, you know, more than likely not going to start, but I mean, there's a lot of guys just sitting in the portal without a home. I mean, you know, my dad's a football coach. He's had guys that have come to him and said, Hey, you know, I'm jumping in the portal. And my dad's kind of been like, you know, where are you going? Like, you know, who's talking like, you going anywhere? And lots of times they just sit there with no home. And, you know, for some guys, that's the end of football. And, you know, a lot of guys need a scholarship. They, you know, need the undergraduate education to get a job later in life. And so I, I you know, I hope there's a role and, you know, some sort of advisory role by somebody to give them the correct guidance they need. Cause with coaches, if coaches hear their guys are entering the portal, you know, they may not, you know, trust them as much anymore. You know, lots of schools say like, if you get in the portal, we're not going to let you come back. So like, I just feel like some players are extremely misguided uh, and as awesome as the great stories of, you know, these quarterbacks transferring these players transferring from, you know, smaller schools to big schools. I think there's a lot left out there of failure stories and players just not making it, not finding homes and having to pivot with their life. So uh, I, I wish there was more of an advisory guidance rule by somebody. So one thing we haven't really talked about with the transfer portal is kind of how the NIL, you know, deals that people can sign kind of impact that, I know Quinn Ewers was a big guy that they were, you know, talking about with that, that he, you know, picked obviously Texas so he could, you know, there was a lot of, lot of NIL money uh, that goes along with Texas, you know, Texas A&M, big money schools like that. How much of an impact do you guys think that will have on future players' decisions, specifically quarterbacks, when they know, you know, they can make a lot of money? I know we're probably going to hit on it later, but something like a Travis Hunter situation where, you know, he kind of saw he could make, you know, six or seven figures from Barstool at Jackson State and what 18-year-old is going to turn that down? Yeah, and this is kind of uh, right when NIL came out. These were my kind of fears because, in theory, coaches can't talk about it. That one of the rules is coaches can't promise you anything. Coaches can't really, you know, specifically talk about, hey, we're going to give you this deal worth this amount of money. That's illegal. But, you know, what's not illegal is saying, hey, like our sort of starting quarterback made 800000 off NIL. Like, if you come here and you be the starting quarterback, like, we can't promise you it, but, you know, this is what's happening. So, uh, and then also you mentioned Barstool with Travis Hunter. Anybody else besides coaches coaches that come out on social media and say, hey, we'll pay you this amount and this amount, I mean, that in theory is legal. So uh, I did think that was really interesting because lots of people were worried like big-time schools would be doing it. And so to see a HBCU do it is really kind of compelling. I do. This was kind of my fear with the whole NIL stuff. So it is. it will be really curious to see, as you mentioned, you know, 18-year-olds 
19 year olds who's going to say no to six figures so it will it's going to get really really interesting here in the next you know three four years and so kind of going off that gavin you know that was one of the big stories coming out of national sign day was travis hunter flipping from florida state to jacksonville state to play for coach Deion sanders and uh something i wanted to touch on another kind of local thing was uh Jason Barham, uh, he was a guy from Maryland, four-star linebacker, and he commits to South Carolina, I believe it was Saturday before um, the early signing period. So, you know, he gives the verbal, didn't sign the letter of intent. So obviously, like, it's not, you know, completely through. So, you know, he could still go back on his word. Um, and after he commits on Saturday, um, he gets a call from a guy in Maryland that I guess Beamer knows or has contact. He's saying, just letting you know, Barham's going to flip to Maryland on Wednesday. Um, and so basically what this seemed like to me, and obviously the full story is not out there. I don't want to say that I, you know, have super inside source on the information, but what the media has made it seem like is Barham basically staged a commitment and even Beamer in his press conference made it seem like that. And so Beamer gets a call Tuesday night, Wednesday is, you know, remind you Wednesday is the signing period. So the next day he's going to sign his letter of intent supposedly to play for South Carolina. Beamer gets a call from Barham saying, you know, his family's so grateful for the opportunity. They're excited to come to South Carolina. And tomorrow, obviously, he ends up flipping to Maryland. I find it very hard to believe that the people in his corner thought this was the best decision, um, whether that be the Maryland uh, coaching staff, his family. Somewhere along this process, there was somebody that was misguiding him. Because to me, for him to commit to South Carolina with what seems like no actual intention of coming here and just kind of knowing he was going to flip back to home to Maryland all along, I just think is insane to me. And look, I have no problem with a guy, you know, flipping his commitment. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you, if I think I want to go all the way to California and then I'm like, you know what? I don't think that's the best decision for me. Um, that's fine. And these kind of flips happen all the time, but within a week of each other at, and, and continuing to lead a coach on like that, I just think is insane and something I wanted to hit on roads. You might have some stuff to bounce off that. Yeah, I think it's just a really bad look for the kid. I think it, when teams, you know, in the NFL, I, ultimately that probably is his dream is to go play professional football. If this, all of this, what, you know, Coach Beamer's saying what's kind of coming out of Maryland, out of South Carolina, proves to be true, that that's a really bad look on a kid and his ego. And I said, you know, to a lot of my, you know, coworkers and some of the people within the program, you know, I don't want a kid like that that, you know, his ego so inflated that he wanted to stage this big thing and, you know, verbally commit to a coach, you know, like a coach Beamer, who's you know, known as like a player's coach, really, really nice guy uh, and all that and commit to Maryland. You know, I get he's a hometown kid, but if he wanted to go there, he might as well just said, you know, I'll, you know, I'm going to commit to Maryland. I'm going to sign with Maryland. Um, he's signing with a coach that is 14 and 49 in his career at Maryland. Like we were saying earlier, with coaches getting fired in the transfer portal, I would not be surprised if this kid was in the portal in the next one to two years. Kind of going from that, going to the Clemson side of it, Clemson had a few decommitments this past week and a half um, as signing day approaches. They were all all after Brent Venables signed as a new head coach at Oklahoma. We lost three guys from IMG. We lost a five-star and then two four-stars. Just three huge losses for the Tigers um, as we have a class of only 12 players and two of them, one is a punter and one is a kicker. So realistically, only 10 players in the class, which is just embarrassing for a school like Clemson as we have championship aspirations every year. And kind of going from that into the coaching changes, that leads us into kind of Brent Venables and Tony Elliott 
moving on. Brent Venables signed with Oklahoma. So I think he'll be a great head coach and um, he's going to really build that program up and build a, a great culture there. He's going to make them defensive minded schools. They go into SEC and Tony Elliott at Virginia. Everyone kind of doubted him the last year. He was at Clemson. He, he only really had one down year and he really started getting a lot of unwarranted hate in my opinion. But I think he's going to also really going to build up that culture at Virginia and build build a great school. So kind of replacing those dudes, Clemson promoted from within, which the fans hated. They promoted Wesley Gooden and Mickey Kahn as co-defensive coordinators. And Wesley Gooden, a little background on him. He coached for the Cardinals for a while under Bruce Arians. And then Brandon Streeter, the old quarterback's coach, was promoted offensive coordinator. And then Kyle Richardson is the new passing game coordinator. And Kyle Richardson ran the air raid at Northwestern. So he'll bring some new fresh ideas to the table. Brandon Streeter's been at OC before, so there's nothing really knew about it. He knows what he's doing. Um, he's not some chump. Clemson fans didn't really like the inside hires, which I don't agree with. I liked inside hires. Um, you got Dabo. You got to – he's built this program from the ground up. He's built this culture. You got to really trust him and trust who he has in line. He's not stupid. He's not an idiot. He knows, he knows what he's doing. These Both these guys and Wesley and Brandon um, – They've had NFL guys try and come and hire them, especially Wesley. He's NFL guys have tried to hire him as a linebackers coach several times, and Brandon Streeter has gotten some NFL offers as well and some other looks. So they're not just some some chumps that um, Dabo just promoted up because they they're coaches at Clemson. Clemson has had a little trouble also with nine transfers since the season started and lost two coordinators. So a lot of mayhem going on in Clemson right now, but they really just gotta trust trust Dabo. The fans gotta trust Dabo. I think he'll, he'll build, build him back up and get ready for another playoff run. You mentioned uh, Venables to start, and I do. I think he's going to be a really good coach. I think he's been uh, the best coordinator in college football the past, you know, honestly about four or five years, which is kind of crazy. And you didn't really mention it, but, you know, countless teams have tried to come after him. Or last year when uh, Kansas State made a big push for him, and, you know, that was his alma mater. And so people are like, you know, if he's not going to go back to his alma mater, like what job is he looking for? And, you know, for me, th this was the job. You know, he was D.C. at Oklahoma in 2000 when they won the national title. Uh, he was D.C. for there years after that. That is where he had his first big-time, big-time success. And so for me, that, I mean, that is the job for Brent Venables. He knows the place. He knows the community. He knows the fans. He knows the administration. I think he's going to do really big things. And I think uh, we will put this on the script. I think Oklahoma will be a playoff team in 2022. Uh, and I think they make it to the national championship game. I don't know if they win it, but I think they'll make it for the first time. So that's, that's how I feel in my two cents. So you think uh, this, that would be their last year in the Big 12? You think they'll, they'll make a, a playoff run, Gavin? Yes. Yeah, I think – uh, the Big 12 is going to be up in the air next year. You know, Oklahoma State loses their D.C. Baylor has a bunch of guys in the portal. Texas yeah. had a down year. You know, I think Oklahoma, I think this is a great year to hire Venables, have a new coach. I think they win the Big 12. I think they get into the playoff and win at least one game. I can see it. I can see it. He's got a lot to replace with Caleb Williams, a lot of wide receivers offensively transferring. But, you know, he's going to have a, a well-coached defense. So I can – Definitely get behind that. And to talk about big games, let's uh, kind of move into this year's playoff predictions. You know, I wanted to talk about – I wanted to give first a quick shout to one of our uh, listeners, JB, a uh, big Michigan guy. But unfortunately, JB, I uh, am not crazy in love with this matchup for Michigan versus Georgia. I think Georgia's run defense is third in the country, and that's kind of Michigan's bread and butter. And I, I think Georgia's coming in this game just – 
angry. I mean, they kind of got embarrassed. Kirby, another, you know, primetime loss in the SEC championship. And I, I think they're coming this game angry and they're ready to they're ready to play. I think, you know, it's it's interesting to me to see where Georgia goes with quarterback because I think a lot of, you know, fans and just college football people think Georgia needs a change at quarterback. But I think when you look at it, you know, Michigan's got one of the best D lines in the country. Um, so they're gonna get after the passer. And I actually think Stetson Bennett's mobility bodes better than even if, you know, JT Daniels might be better in these big games or whatever you want to call it. I just I think they should stick with Stetson Bennett, ride it out, and just trust that their defense is going to be do well enough to stop the run. But you know, I could definitely see Michigan. Um, you know, they're a very talented team. They're improving at the right time, had a strong win versus Iowa in the conference championship. So um I'm not gonna say this is a blowout of any kind, but um I do think Georgia fares well in this matchup. So moving on to the other bowl game, um, you know, the other big playoff game, the Cotton Bowl, it's going to be Cincinnati, a group of five team finally makes the playoff. And before I get into Cincinnati a little bit, I'm going to apologize to any of our Cincinnati listeners out there. Um, I picked East Carolina to beat them in the last regular season game, and that obviously didn't happen. So they made it this far. So congratulations to them. But they've got Alabama, uh, who just waxed, who most of us on this podcast thought was an untouchable team in the Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, They went out there and just dominated. However, I kind of like this matchup for Cincinnati. They're number two against the pass nationally, and they have three really, really good corners in Sauce Gardner, Kobe Bryant, and Arquan Bush. Um, that's, you know, first-team all-names right there, honestly. But Sauce Gardner is a junior and has not given up a touchdown his entire career, which I think is actually pretty crazy. I assume they will probably put him or Kobe on uh, Jamison Williams. And with Mechie being out, I can see this actually being a really, really interesting game. Uh, they are number two against the pass, as I mentioned, but they have not – face anyone as close to uh, Bryce Young. So this is going to be a really, really good matchup. Uh, personally, I think Alabama is just going to do just enough to win, but I think Cincinnati is going to easily cover the 14 points. So uh, what do you guys have to say in terms of predictions or any you know X factors for this game or uh, the Georgia-Michigan game that Will was talking about? So, yeah, like I said earlier, I, I could I definitely see uh, Georgia you know, doing just enough, you know, doing well enough against the run. I mean, I think that defense is going to step up and have a bigger game. And I think Alabama, you know, I'm kind of with you. I think we're going to see an SC championship rematch um, in the national championship in a couple of weeks. So I have Georgia and Alabama. Yeah, I think the obvious pick here is the SEC championship rematch. It's obviously the favorites, but I'm going to go with a Michigan-Bama championship. I think Michigan's going to pull out something special. I think Georgia, they're going to play hard. They're going to play for revenge, but I just don't think they'll have enough. Yeah, Rhodes, I like what you were saying about Cincinnati. You know, I think uh... – I think they're a really good football team. They have an experienced quarterback, a great running back. Defense is good enough, but, you know, they beat Notre Dame, but I don't think they've seen a team like Alabama. So uh, I do think they cover the spread. I think it's going to be a back-and-forth game. I think it's going to be a single-digit game. But at the end of the day, you know, Alabama's been in more of those games this year than Cincinnati has, uh, and they have a more experienced coach. So I think in the fourth quarter, Alabama gets it done and wins by single digits. Uh, and then – Michigan, Georgia, for me, I'm rolling Michigan, dude. I, I I think their run game's incredible. They waxed Ohio State and Iowa to end the season. So I think they, I mean, they're moving as well as anybody is right now. And I think they, they have enough to beat Georgia. So I, I think we'll see like Allen, Michigan and Alabama in the championship game. So before we uh, move into our specific team predictions, uh, I'm going to go with my Georgia-Michigan prediction. I'm also going to go with Michigan. I went back and forth on this game, but a big game Kirby Smart doesn't really give me a lot of hope in the Georgia Bulldogs. So I'm going to take Michigan. I'm going to take Harbaugh over Smart in this matchup. 
Now moving into some of our team predictions. Rhodes will kind of break down the South Carolina versus North Carolina Dukes Mayo Bowl. So our start off, this is a really interesting matchup. In the last episode of the podcast, I did say that this was uh, our most likely bowl game and against this opponent. So we obviously know what UNC can do, especially offensively. Sam Howell, you know, is a first-round pick, probably a quarterback. Uh, so I'm actually surprised that he is going to suit up and play in this game, but, you know, definitely respect him for doing so. Uh, Jason Brown, our quarterback, uh, who started the last few games of the season, transferred out. So Zeb Nolan, uh, America's favorite story, is going to get the start. Um, on December 30th in Charlotte, can he can he end it? You know, can he can he write the end of the storybook with a win against North Carolina? I think this is actually a pretty big game for us against this certain opponent. I think if it was somebody else, it wouldn't be as big. But recruiting battles, especially on the border, we're seeing you would see uh, after the early signing day was number one in the ACC in recruiting. Uh, they and it wasn't really that close. So. Mac Brown's really, really been recruiting, and we're going to have to win against him to get a lot of these big recruits that Beamer wants to get in the future. So th- this is huge. Uh, UNC can run the ball. They've got Howell, who's over 800 yards rushing. they got Ty Chandler, the Tennessee transfer, who's over 1,000 yards rushing. Uh, but one one key factor that I, that I want to mention in this game was Sam Howell's first game in his career. He started as a true freshman, and it was against us in Charlotte, same stadium, and they beat us when no one expected them to beat us. I think we were – nine and a half, 10 point favor in that game, at least. I think it might've been double digits. So uh, maybe, you know, we can get Zeb going. Their pass defense is really, really bad. They're giving up about 250 passing yards a game. So I think we got a shot and I'm really excited to see what Zeb can do. And hopefully we can uh, serve Sam Howell some revenge. So Will, do you have anything to add uh, about the Gamecocks? Yeah, so I just want to add in that Rose and I had a long ride home from Charlotte after that uh, loss and pretty much the end of Jake Bentley's South Carolina career. But just a quick thing to add, I do think this bowl game is very important for Beamer. I don't necessarily say it's crucial for him to win. You know, I think you've got a lot of transfers coming in that's really going to change, you know, and not necessarily change your momentum, but, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to see the same players continue to develop. I could see South Carolina still losing this and be okay because, you know, a lot of these players aren't going to be here. Um, and I still think with all the positive momentum Beamer has built up from the transfer portal, I still think. This bowl game is kind of like, a, you know, an extra, you know, you win. That's great. And obviously we should we want to win, you know, for the seniors and everything like that. But I think in terms of next year, I don't really think it slows you down in any way with a loss in this game. Going off that, I think Beamer's done enough in this year. No matter if y'all win by 50 or lose by 50, I uh, you know, just making a bowl game in year one is very, very impressive. And, Will, you mentioned it, big-time transfers coming in. This team will be different next year, and I think just getting them to a bowl game, showing uh, you know everyone, all the South Carolina fans, even all of college football, that he could do that in you know, year one, uh, having another full year with transfers coming in. I, I think South Carolina may make some noise, but I don't think they're making noise in their bowl game. I think uh, North Carolina wins pretty handily. So uh, I love you guys. I've been picking South Carolina in some of the upset games this year, but – I, I don't think they get it done in Charlotte. My take on the bowl game, um, I think Beamer is building a great culture there at South Carolina. I think he's doing it the right way. I think this bowl game, losing doesn't really set him back, as one of y'all kind of said, but definitely going into next year, a, a win would propel you even more. I think the key to winning is Nick Muse. Um, you got to feed the tight end there, as NC State did when they beat North Carolina. I do have North Carolina winning this game behind Sam Howell, going out in his UNC career with a big win, big win. And just to add before we uh, move into the Mississippi State game at the Liberty Bowl, um, I think Rhodes and I will bring enough crowd noise and, you know, athletic training ability to push the Gamecocks over the Tar Heels in a close one. But I think uh, the Gamecocks are going to be able to do enough to get the win in Charlotte. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I look, look at myself as an X factor. You know, I will be out there giving some water, maybe some Gatorade. So uh, we're going to try to try to do a little uh, poisoning potentially of the UNC Gatorade and uh, see what we can do. You know, hopefully Coach Beamer is going to have mayonnaise poured on him at the end of the game. That's the goal. That being said, let's move on to the Liberty Bowl. You know, not in terms of the two actual teams, but in terms of the two colleges, it's quite a polarizing matchup. If you know anything about uh, Mike Leach, he uh, had this big-time air raid success at Texas Tech where, you know, Graham Harrell, Michael Crabtree, you know, they threw it all over the place, had great yards. I think uh, until Bailey Zapp today just broke the record, the previous record for yards in the season was held by a former Texas Tech quarterback under Mike Leach. So uh, he had a lot of success there. And, you know, his time there took a dark turn when uh, he had some allegations come out about a player with a concussion. And, uh, you know, you guys can look it up if you don't know it, but just it ended poorly. And, uh, since then, Leach has gone over to Washington State, had success there, and is now having solid success in the SEC score Mississippi State. Uh, so that alone gives this matchup a lot of value, in my opinion. Uh, I think it's going to be really, really interesting because Texas Tech fired their majority of their coaching staff midway through the season. So uh, they have a new head coach, new coordinators. Uh, I think the way it's going to work is some of the assistant position coaches from this year's staff will be the calling the plays, but, you know, they hired the Western Kentucky OC, Zach Kitley, as their OC for the next year. He'll be in attendance, but I don't think he'll be actively coaching. Uh, so in my opinion, that kind of provides a big distraction for the team. Uh, I'm not sure how Texas Tech is handling that, but uh, it's going to be something that they're going to have to manage. For Mississippi State, they have two players, Charles Cross and Martin Emerson, that are opting out and deciding not to play in the bowl game. Uh, Cross is going to be a first-round pick in this year's draft, and Emerson is probably going to be a day-two guy. Those two players opting out does hurt, but uh, I think Mississippi State you know, has enough to get it done against this Texas Tech team. Uh, in my opinion, we don't have a Rhodes-Campbell X-Factor, but uh, what we do have is Cowbells, and they are letting Cowbells into the stadium for the bowl game, and uh, I think that – throws Texas Tech off, and I think that it pushes Mississippi State to victory. All right, now going into the Cheez-It Bowl, Clemson versus Iowa State. So as I talked about earlier, both Tony Elliott and Brent Venables are gone. Um, they will not be coaching in the bowl game, so it's a good opportunity for the new coordinator to step up, get a step up in recruiting, kind of help them. So the Iowa State defense plays a three-lineman scheme, so that plays right into Clemson um, as Clemson's offensive line is not that good. So it will help Clemson run the ball and get the run game going, which will then set up the pass game. Brees Hall, the Iowa State running back, he is the real deal. Um, he will play the next level. This year he has had 1,472 yards and 20 touchdowns. Clemson has to stop him to win. I believe we'll play a lot of man-to-man -man and trust our starting two corners, kind of like we did against Wake Forest. So Andrew Booth, who's a projected top 10 pick, and Mario Goodrich, who's one of the most improved players this season, should get drafted third, fourth round. So, yeah, those are kind of the keys to the game. I got Clemson getting this win handedly. Kind of go off what Alan said. I also think Clemson's actually going to win this game. I'm not a big Iowa State guy. I do like, you know, their quarterback, running back combo, whatever. But I think Clemson's had a lot of time prepared for this game. They have had some distractions, you know, the coordinators leaving all this. But, you know, I do think they'll find a way. And I think uh, Dabo will catch a pretty good game. So, I'll go with Clemson. I do think a lot of people are kind of counting Dabo out in this game, but I do kind of wonder, you know, I, I think Iowa State's going to come in hungry. I think, you know, they had a little bit more of a disappointing season. I mean, I think there were people that thought they were a playoff team potentially at the beginning of the season. Yeah. So for them to uh, kind of end the season with no trophy, I think would kind of be a tough, tough year for them. So I think they're going to come in this game motivated. I actually think Iowa State's going to win, but I do think Clemson's going to play well. 
Yeah, you know, I uh, think it'd be tougher for Clemson to end the year without a trophy. You know, they ended the season really well. Big win over Wake Forest. Uh, beat the crap out of some Gamecocks. So uh, I, I think they continue that into uh, bowl season. And I, I do think they beat Iowa State pretty handily. I will say one impressive thing. Clemson has had no opt-outs this season. Um, very surprising. Um, as no playoff, you would think some guys would opt out. But Dabo's got them boys all in. Now, moving into the NFL, we haven't talked about that yet on the Lunchroom Podcast, but um, something we will get into more as college football is ending. Will, kind of tell us about the playoff picture, how it's shaping up, and then we'll go into who our favorites are to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, so the NFL is finally kind of getting into the, you know, our, our playoff picture is kind of forming, and a team I really want to talk about is the Packers. I'm very high on them this year, as y'all know. It seems to be, at least, Aaron Rodgers kind of last go-around with the Packers. Obviously, he could still stay things change but it really seems like his disagreements with the front office there you know is going to push him out of Green Bay after this year they're they're a 10 and 3 team at this point in the season and they have losses to the Vikings Chiefs and Saints they lost to the Saints week one which I think was just kind of a fluke loss they were kind of they weren't really they really built their chemistry yet I know he's been there for a while but I think it was just kind of a fluke loss for them week one they lost to the Chiefs when Aaron Rodgers was out with COVID or his little you know whole uh COVID vaccine, you know, problem there when he faked his vaccination status. And then um, they lost to the Vikings, you know, a divisional opponent uh, by a field goal in a big game on a Sunday. So, you know, I mean, can't win them all. But I think this is a team that, you know, I just think Aaron Rodgers is so motivated to kind of leave this franchise that has done so much for him and has meant so much for him to, you know, kind of leave and leave that legacy with the Super Bowl. Because I think it's so important for him to, for his legacy. I mean, he's one of some of the best quarterbacks ever but he just he's only got one championship which is I think kind of keeping him from that conversation obviously I'm not saying he's on the level of Tom Brady that's a whole nother level that's goat level in his uh, class but I think Brady's uh I mean Rodgers is very motivated to lead the Packers this year so definitely a team I would uh, look out for and see making a deep run in the playoffs and possibly win the Super Bowl yeah so my uh Super Bowl matchup that I am predicting right now uh, it's kind of an interesting one but Watching the NFL for, you know, however many years I have, I've, I've noticed that the NFL, for whatever reason, loves a good storyline. I think there would be no greater storyline than a Brady-Belichick Super Bowl when they're on opposite sides. Right now, I trust the Bucks probably more than the Pats to make it there. I think the Pats, obviously, getting through the Chiefs or the Titans would be pretty tough. But the Bucks, I've learned that over the years, picking against Tom Brady in the playoffs just isn't the way to go. So I, right now, I have the Pats and the Bucks. Obviously, that could change. You know, you never know what... COVID's going around the NFL right now, so you never know how these teams are going to end up. But right now, I would say I'm going to take uh, Mac Jones and the Pats against Tom Brady and the Bucks, and I think it would be a really, really cool Super Bowl and would definitely, I think, be one of the more watched ones ever. It would have been easy to go with Chiefs-Packers. I, I can definitely see that matchup. But uh, I'm going to go a little out of the box with my AFC pick. I think, you know, the Titans are right now the number two team in the AFC, and that is currently without their top running back and top receiver and countless guys on defense. And the majority of those guys are expected to be healthy by playoff time. So I think if they can, you know, win a couple here to try to get a good matchup in the first round of the wild card game, I think they can make some noise. Uh, Derrick Henry is supposed to come back week 17 is what they're thinking now, maybe week 18. And if he's back, if A.J. Brown comes back healthy, I mean, this team's proven in the past that they're a team to not count out. So I think they finally make the push and win the AFC this year. You know, I think they can cause Mahomes to throw some turnovers if they get into a game with the Chiefs. Uh, I think against the Patriots, you know, they beat them two years ago in the playoffs. Uh, one of Tom Brady, I think it was Tom Brady's last game as a Patriot, actually. So uh, this team's proven they know how to win. I think Mike Vrabel is a great coach. 
I think they get in the Super Bowl. And then in the NFC, I think I, I don't think you can count out Brady in the playoffs. I think he gets the Bucks to another NFC championship game, and I think they win that and make it to another Super Bowl. But uh, those are my picks as of this week. So my picks for the Super Bowl, um, same as Will's, Packers, Chiefs. I think the Chiefs are lighting up at the right time. Um, they're the team to beat in the AFC. They started off a little slow, didn't look as dominant as they have been in the past, but they really turned it on. And then I think in the NFC, the best team, I think it is the Packers. So I got a Packers Chiefs Super Bowl. I think Aaron Rodgers is the most gifted quarterback in the NFL. Right now, Tom Brady is the GOAT. He's the best in the NFL. But he like he's a winner, but I think Rodgers is the most gifted. And I think that he's got a great team around him. Um, and they've had a great team for a while. And I think he's been knocking on the door. He was knocking on the door last year. And I think this is finally the Packers year that they'll they'll beat the Bucks. They'll make it in. I think the Cards and the Cowboys are on a kind of a level below of the uh, the Packers Bucks in the NFC. Shout out to all the Cowboys lovers in Clemson. Yeah, I think Packers Chiefs is a Super Bowl. Now let's go into the NBA. Um, a record breaking night from Steph. I think it was a uh, pretty cool. It's something we definitely all saw coming. At least you know midway through his career, we kind of knew this was going to happen. But I do want to give a shout out to my boy Ray Allen. You know he did he did hold the record for a little while. And he was there to see it, which I thought was really cool. And, you know, Steph was able to go give him a hug and all that. A really cool moment for Steph and definitely a superstar, in my opinion, that's been pretty easy to cheer for throughout his career. Um, individually, maybe not his team, but, you know, Steph Curry individually is definitely a guy that I've always kind of rooted for. So uh, really happy for him. And I, I do think that he's going to continue to bid on this record. And I honestly don't think it'll ever be broken, at least, you know, within maybe 20 or 25 years. So it'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, so I just think this is kind of like a big kind of signifier of, you know, just how basketball and especially the NBA, the way the NBA basketball has played has changed. The three ball has just become a vital part of, you know, pro basketball. And if you if you can't shoot the three ball anymore, you know, you're really your your value as an individual player has changed. And I just think it's very fitting for Steph to kind of be crowned the, you know, basically the best shooter of all time to this point. Um, and I'm kind of with Rhodes here. I just you know, I don't see this record being broken, um, but it, it just again, it, it just shows the, the evolution of the NBA and how, you know, much more important the three ball is, because I think there are going to be more people that pass Ray Allen's record that are currently playing right now. I just don't think anyone's going to catch Steph. I agree with that. I think Steph's the best shooter of all time. Now moving on a little COVID stories. No, no one really likes to talk about COVID, but Kyrie's coming back for road games after they said they wouldn't bring him back. So any any comments on this? Any thoughts? I think Kyrie's actually in protocols today, which is kind of funny because he uh, just decided to come back, and I think he already tested positive. <laughs> so uh, that is interesting. Um, you know, I'm a pro-vaccine guy, so I thought he should have got it and shouldn't have made a big deal about it. He did, and that was his decision, and I respect that. I mean, I think he's a talented player, and I think the Nets would like him. But at the same time, I mean, Katie's been going crazy recently, and, you know, with another primary ball handler entering the mix and, you know, taking away touches, I think that may mess up their flow. When you can get a good player like him back, you do what you can. So uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, like, the Nets don't have Kyrie, but they're still number one in the Eastern Conference. So, I mean, I'm kind of with Gavin. I think it could definitely mess up their flow. I mean, obviously, when they're, when you lose a player as talented as Kyrie, like, it hurts your team. But I think this Nets team, and even in the – in the postseason last year, um, I still believe, you know, it was just James Harden and KD when they were playing with the Bucks. And, I mean, as you all know, I mean, KD was about a step back away, you know, just a little bit longer step back away or like a half shoe size down from them beating the Bucks 
in that series and going to the finals. So, I'm, yeah, I'm very much with Gavin. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Kyrie's a great player. I think it's good for basketball when he's playing. With this whole vaccine thing, I think it's more uh, hurtful than helpful to bring him back if he's not going to get vaccinated. So I, I was thinking about this point. I, I don't really know if this makes a lot of sense, but obviously we know the Nets are, you know, high seed in the playoffs and they would have home court advantage throughout the playoffs. You know, say the COVID rules in New York stay the same. I don't know if it's ever been brought about, but do you think the Nets would still want home court when they knew that Kyrie would be able to play more games if they didn't have home court, depending on who they were playing? I was thinking about that this morning. I don't really know if that makes a lot of sense, but I was wondering if you guys thought about that. No, I, I've never thought about that. But I think that's a I think that's a great point. Obviously, they'd much rather have Kyrie on their team. So I think they may not want home court. Just an amazing point guard. He's won a championship before. He knows what it takes. So yeah, I agree with you there. I really don't want to bring Kyrie back if I'm the Nets to mess up this chemistry. I mean, I know they're paying him and, you know, it's getting very frustrating and all that. But I think they've got a really good team right now that's capable of competing for a title. Um, I mean, Katie's one of the best players on the planet. And I mean, everybody forgets they still have James Harden, even though they lost Kyrie. So, I mean, Harden's also, you know, you know, one of the best scorers in the league right now. So I just I think Kyrie's another primary ball handler that takes touches away from those two guys. So, I mean, I think, you know, y'all are right to an extent, but I keep Kyrie off the floor if I'm the Nets. All right. Thanks for everyone for listening in. Um, make sure to tune in next week for the Lunchroom Podcast.